Good morning, Door of Hope. Thanks. The reading today and the scripture that we're going to be covering is Luke 16, 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn to the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may remove or receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended this dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in the very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of God. Good morning, everybody. Oh, I don't have my timer set as usual. My name is Ian. For anyone who doesn't know me, I'm one of the teaching pastors here. It is a pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm glad to see that you're all here. Stick around for the potluck. It sounds like we have a lot of different kinds of salad. Who doesn't like that, right? Doesn't matter. That's good stuff. So before we dive into this parable, we need to uh, pause and have another quick word of prayer. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Jesus, thank you for yourself. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for leaving us with your word. Thank you for the guidance. Thank you for the instruction. Thank you for... Information seems like the wrong word, but everything that we need to know is here. Your word says that it, every, every word of it is, is God-breathed and it is, it is faithful for instruction and for reproval and, it is in, and uh, for training in righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that this morning we would hear what it is that your word has to say. Not, not any person, not any man or woman who has... Uh, an opinion or an insight on this, but that we would be wise and that we would be slow and we would dig in deep to what it is that you have to show us here in this parable this morning and that through the sovereignty and the, the power of your spirit, you would convict hearts, that you would meet people where they're at, that they would be encouraged or convicted, they would be converted, Lord, that would be great. We just come humbly before you, set me aside and let me only say what it is that you have for us to hear. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So this parable, I've, I've got, you know, I don't want to draw too much attention to this, but some of you may already know, and so I want to 
I want to address this. This, this parable is notoriously the, the most difficult of the parables. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations of what Jesus is trying to say here. And, and the most common one, people hear this parable and their immediate question is, wait a minute, is Jesus commending dishonesty? Is he saying, this guy was a shyster and it's awesome, so go and do likewise? Is that what Jesus is saying here? And that's, that's honestly the question that people have most commonly and that is not what Jesus is saying here. That is not what he is teaching here. And I think that as I, and I've been studying this parable for weeks, and honestly the reason why I chose this parable is because <laughs> so I had been instructed actually not to. So I was told, do not do this parable. And I'm not trying to rebel, but it drew my attention to the parable. I was like, well, why not? Why not do this parable? So I read it, and I was like, oh, that's right. It's this parable. And it's, it's scary. It's intimidating. It's a, you know, it, it, it seems to communicate things that either are antithetical to what we understand of Jesus or there's something here that we don't understand and we want to understand. And I think that when people come to this parable, as I've been studying it for these last few weeks, I got a head start on this because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to step in something that I had no awareness of. As I've been studying this, it's, it seems as if the people who have... Uh, multiple interpretations of what uh, Jesus is saying here that, that are kind of confusing and convoluted is either that they look at every little detail and they get very liberal with allegory. Who specifically is Jesus talking about here? Who is the steward? Who is the master? Who are the debtors? What does the number mean whenever, this, whenever the debtor says that I have a, a hundred measures of oil? My translation says a, a hundred baths of oil. What is the, what's the number 100? What is, what's, what's baths mean? What, what is this? And there's all, you just miss the forest to the trees and you, you miss what Jesus is trying to say. Or I think that the other thing that people, uh, that people react to this parable more than they, they read it again and prayerfully and slowly go through it and try to listen to what Jesus is, just, just the point that Jesus is trying to make. Because they, they, hear, they hear this line, they hear, and the master prays the unrighteous steward and then Jesus goes on to say, the sons of this age are more shrewd and make friends for yourselves with the, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of unrighteousness. And, then go, and this is honestly what my reaction has been in the past. Like, I, I don't know what Jesus is saying there. I have faith that it's something good, but I don't get it. So I'm just going to leave it alone. Now, I, I will posit that I believe that this parable is actually much more clear than we give it credit for. I think the point that Jesus is trying to make, the moral of the story, the, the nucleus, the lesson, the thing in the center that Jesus is trying to tell us is actually quite clear. It's right on the surface. And if you just take a moment to read it again, then the application of it can be, is, is varied. And the application of this parable is, is one that we don't have time to cover the fullness of this morning. I would encourage you to go home find a good Bible commentary, ESV study commentary is a good place to begin, and, and, and get into this. Find out more than what I'm able to tell you this morning. Find out the opposing views. Find out the other things that people are saying, and, and for yourself, search the scriptures prayerfully. Because I think that there's been a lot of confusion around this parable because people have not done that. So with that said, what this, what this parable is, is about uh, is really beautiful. Uh, Jesus is saying here, we're, you're supposed to do something. 
There is work that needs to, be, needs to be done. He says in verse 8, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. He's, he's talking about things getting accomplished, about being shrewd, about being clever, about being witty, about using your head. But he's not just referring to work that needs to be done in the kingdom of God. He also gives us reason to do that. He gives us every motivation, every reason to have affection and to have love and to have worship of the person Jesus Christ and that affection and that love and that worship will manifest in the way that we live, not only in our own personal lives, but in the greater community around us. It is as natural as plants growing out of the dirt. You put them in the right environment and they will grow. And Jesus Christ will cause us out of love to be generous, to check our own hearts, to check our own lives, to test ourselves, to see where there's besetting sin that we're, that we're grappling with or that we're even trying to hide. And so this isn't just cold. This isn't just mechanical because we can be that way. We can be cold and mechanical. We can just say, well, just give me a percentage. Give me a percentage, I'll write a check, I'll give it to you, leave me alone. Okay, I'll volunteer to do this thing for a little while. It, it becomes basically the price of just how much do I need to give you to leave me in peace? Or how much time do I need to volunteer so that you stop calling me or that I just feel better about myself? My guilty conscience is assuaged because I did good this month. I donated so much money and so many hours. We can be generous with our resources but not generous with our heart. And this parable gets to the core of that. It gets to what we do and why we do it. Some people will just say, well, where, where in the Old Testament does it say give 10%? I'll just, I'll just do that. I'll just do that, leave me alone, and, see, and I'll, I'll, I'll write another check next month, that sort of thing. And by the way, that's Deuteronomy 14.22, 10% of your yearly. So Jesus is speaking here to a group of people that's very diverse. We know from verse 14 that there are Pharisees in the mix. It says that the Pharisees, when they heard these things, who were lovers of money, scoffed at Jesus when he gets to the end of this parable. We know that he's speaking to his disciples. And in the very first verse of chapter 16, he was also saying to his disciples. Now, his disciples were not just necessarily his 12 apostles that he had picked out specifically. We know from Luke 6 that from the large number of his disciples, he picked 12 to be apostles. So there's people here who are surrounding Jesus during his teaching who have some sort of interest in him. It might be self-seeking. It might just be curiosity. But then there's the 12 apostles who are devoted. They have in Peter's words, left all to follow after Jesus. And then there's people here in this group who are his enemies. And what this parable does and what a lot of the parables do is it draws a line. Very clear line. And which side are you on? And this is a parable that causes us to check ourselves. This is a parable that causes you to look at your life and really get honest with where you're at, with Jesus, where you're at, with your faith. Are you, do you really believe in the resurrected Lord as the savior of the universe? God in the flesh died on the cross for your sins and offers you his righteousness. Believe in him for salvation. Is that who Jesus is or is he a nice guy? We've, we've come to that again and again and this parable draws a line. And it's in a different way. It's from a different, it's, it's from a different point of view or vantage point, but it draws a line. And so he's saying to this big group of people, disciples and Pharisees alike, there was a rich man who had a steward and the steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called for him. 
And he says, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be the steward. Now I'll pause for just a moment because I don't wanna, I don't wanna get too deep into this, but one of, one of the crosshairs, one of the sort of whys in the road, the forks in the road, if you will, that people take about how to uh, interpret this parable is right here. Was this steward deliberately being irresponsible? Was he deliberately being a shyster? Was he deliberately being dishonest? Was he stealing and knew that he was doing it? Or was he just not good with money? Was he just inept? Was he just not good at his job? Now, I would posit that that's a silly question because this is called the parable of the shrewd steward. I mean, he's praised for being clever. So I, I think that he's up to no good. I think that he's doing dirty deeds and he knows about it. It's premeditated. He's doing something wrong. He's squandering his master's possessions and he knows it. And so he gets fired. He's told to give an account. And so verse three, the steward said to himself, well, what shall I do? My master is taking the stewardship away from me and I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So I know what I'll do. And so that when I am removed from the stewardship, people will take me into their homes. And so he summoned each one of the debtors and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And the man said, 100 baths of oil. A, a bath is about eight or nine gallons. And so we're talking about eight to 900 gallons of oil here, olive oil. So a massive amount of oil. Jesus uses this huge language, big, wealthy, lush, lavish language, eight or 900 gallons of oil. And so the steward said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. So 50% off right there. You owe, let's say 850, now you owe 425. That's a big discount. And so what do you say? Cool, hey man, I owe you one. Thank you. You cut 50% off my debt. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said about 100, he said 100 cores of wheat, which is about 1,000 bushels of wheat. And so the steward said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he gets a 20% discount right off the top. So what this guy is doing is pretty plain and it's pretty clear. He's scheming. He's coming up with a way to ensure that his future is secure. He's all of a sudden facing an unpredicted chaos. He's going to lose his job. He's going to lose his place. He's going to lose his role. He's going to lose his authority. He's going to lose his position. He's going to lose the very things that he has possession of because he's no longer going to have the position of steward of the master's estate. And he's got, he doesn't know what to do. So he, he thinks on his feet and he does something that is dishonest but he secures his future. He, he uses his wealth, if you will, to ensure that he's got relationships once that wealth is gone. Once the bottom falls out, he's, he's creating for himself a safety net. In, he's basically making these people in debt to him, right? Now they owe him a favor. Now they like him. He cut them a deal and now they're gonna cut him a deal. This is all basic stuff. We totally understand this. He uses his resources and his role to ensure that through these relationships, he will be safe and secure. And up to this point, there's nothing out of the ordinary, but we come to verse eight and we start to get kind of nervous, right? Because through, from Jesus' lips comes this next sentence. And so the master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. And we can't, we, that we all of a sudden go, wait, this doesn't, this doesn't sound like the Jesus that I know. He's, 
He's praising this guy. And he, and he continues to do so. He's not setting you up for anything. He continues to, to praise this dishonest steward. And we can't help but wonder, what is Jesus doing here? And here, I think, is where one of the, I think this is one of the places where we react to what we're reading. And so we stop reading. We stop thinking and we just, and we just react. But notice closely what Jesus is saying here. The master praised the unrighteous steward because he had been unrighteous or because he'd been a liar because he'd been a manipulator, because he had been a thief, because he was ripping him off. It says that he praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. It's, it's not his dishonesty that's being elevated here or highlighted or praised. It's his wit. He's, he's, he's been clever. And the master in the parable is at least recognizing like, yeah, this guy got one up on me, but it was smart. And I think that we actually feel this way about wit and strategy and being clever and being shrewd more so than we like to admit or even understand because we're in the Bible and we think, well, we shouldn't have to contest with this kind of thing. But as I was studying for this, I heard one of the, one of the pastors that I was listening to give a, a sermon on this. He told a story, and I, I don't know if it was a story from somebody in his congregation or if it was a story from somebody in the neighborhood, like it was something that he read in the newspaper. But it doesn't really matter. He told this story of something that happened to somebody. It's a true story. And the story is that one, let's say a Monday morning, I'm making that up, but one Monday morning, a man and wife got up out of bed, got ready for the day. They left the house and the car that's usually parked in their driveway was gone. Somebody stole their car in the middle of the night. So what do you do? You know, they file a police report. They're out looking for the car. They're taking the bus for the next few days. I don't know. But you, you lose faith in humanity, you know, when that sort of thing happens. It's just like bummer, you know. That's, that's a, that's a, that is a drag that that happened. It's a drag that somebody felt like they had to do that. But then about three or four days later, same couple, they got up out of bed, they got ready for work, they left the house, and their car was again in the driveway. And not only was it in the driveway, but it was unscratched. There was no broken windows. It hadn't been in a car accident. It was in pristine condition, and it had even been washed and polished, and the interior had been detailed from front to back. And so the couple's like, it's like the, you know, that twilight zone moment. We're like, is this, is this really happening? Did we imagine that our car got stolen, and now it's back? How is this going on? We've got to cancel that police report. They're going to think we were lying. This is so weird. They get in the car, and there's an envelope that's sitting on the dashboard, and they open it up, and inside the envelope is a note, and it says, we are so, so sorry that we stole your car. There is a family emergency. We were on foot. We didn't have access to a vehicle. We needed to get someplace very quickly, and so we took your car we, like, we can't apologize enough. What do you say? You know, so we, we washed it, we detailed it, and we've returned it. There's a full tank of gas. We got our problem taken care of. We were able to make it on time. Everything's okay. Thanks again. And, of course, so, so, so sorry. And in the envelope were two tickets to a play that, was, that the performance was playing in a couple of days. And, and the couple was like, well... You know, it sort of restores your sense of humanity again. It's like, okay, all right, it, that was a bummer, but we get it. Like, we don't know what the emergency was. Maybe it was a medical emergency or there was a problem with their family. We don't know, but they needed wheels. And they got them, but they returned the car. Like, they were, they were in an emergency. They had to do something desperate, but they've made up for it. Okay, whew, cool, you know? All is well in the world. And so this man and wife, they take the two tickets, and they go to the play, 
It's about three or four hours long, and they have a great time. And the three or four hours that they're at the play, the people who had stolen the car broke into the house and stole everything out of their house. Right, see, that's, now just catch that right there. Like there's that thing, you go, <laughs> it's evil. But that's clever, right? That's clever. That's clever. We've seen, and we've even said it, I'm sure, you know, the, the people that we've seen who have gone to prison for years and years, and they come up with these ingenious schemes to make life on the inside a little bit easier. They, they, they make drugs, they make alcohol, they smuggle things in and out of the prison that are just insanely smart. Lots of ingenuity, lots of wit, very clever, very disciplined, lots of hard work goes into this, you know? And, we, and what do we say whenever, whenever we hear these stories, we always go, well, if you applied that same ingenuity to something good, to something beneficial, imagine where you could be, imagine what you could do. There it is. That's it. Jesus is saying that, that, that shrewd, not the evil, not the dishonesty. He never commends evil. He never commends dishonesty. It's never okay. But he's saying that, that wit, that be clever. Use your head. Think ahead. Plan. Prepare. Be diligent. Be disciplined. You use that for kingdom good. Use that for what we're called to do as the church here on earth. Be disciplined. Have ingenuity. Be creative. Be entrepreneurs for the sake of King Jesus. This man was praised for being shrewd. He was not praised for being dishonest. He was praised because he was clever. And Jesus goes on to say, for the sons of this age. Now this, this, is, this is a dig. Are we ready for this? This is, this is a dig. This is similar to when Jesus is speaking to his, his apostles and he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more does your father in heaven know how to give good gifts? He calls his disciples evil. Right? I mean, he does it like kind of in a drive-by style, but, but he says it. But he's not doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to be vindictive. He's not doing it to, to cut in a way that's only to hurt. He's trying to lift them up. He's trying, to, he's, he's trying to bolster them. He's trying to make them more mature and more useful and more wise. And so he gives us a warning here. He, get, he, he tests us. He shows us our temperature. He says that the sons of this age, the sons of this world, are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than are the sons of light. This, this wicked steward, this, this lying, manipulating steward, did something that was shrewd and that was clever because he saw that his future was uncertain. And so he did something clever to ensure the security of his future. And we see this so many places in the world around us. I mean, there are people that for the sake of the, the CEO position, for the raise, for an uptick in their job, for their health, for some fitness goal. I mean, people will drive themselves to the brink of madness. They'll work 80 hours a week. They'll take night classes. They'll get up early. They'll stay up late. They'll invest. They'll diet. They'll become educated. They, they exercise a great deal of what we would call discipline. And one of the, one of the greatest lessons that I've learned uh, in my 30s is is to rely on discipline and not on motivation. And you see people in the world who rely not on discipline, or excuse me, not on motivation, but they are disciplined because motivation is fleeting. Motivation comes and goes. And it seems like in the church, our Bibles collect dust and we don't do the 6 a.m. 
morning prayer and we don't go to the evening service and we don't do a whole bunch of things and some of us have legitimate reasons and I'm not trying to knock on that. What I am addressing here and what Jesus is addressing here is that some of us willingly and knowingly just let our Bibles collect dust, our, our inner spirit, our walk with the Lord becomes stagnant and frail because we don't discipline ourselves. We don't, we don't understand that this is the greatest gift that you can possibly have, that people bled and died to get this, this holy book to us in the English language. And it just collects dust, it sits. While the world around us is working 80 hours a week to get into, to get into that job. They're, they're studying 80 hours a week because they have the bar exam ahead of them. They see their future, they know that they have a limited, limited amount of time and they get disciplined. They get busy to make something happen. They get busy because they have a goal and they have a dream, they have an ambition. And I'm not saying that those goals or dreams or ambitions are bad by any means, but we can give them a top priority position when Jesus should have that top priority position. And he just kind of gets what's left over. I'll get up early to make sure that I get in however many miles run that I want to do. But do I get up early and read Colossians again? It only takes 10 minutes. Do I get up and devote myself to prayer? Or do I just pray whenever something really bad happens and say, Lord, help me? Or when something good happens and I say, thank you for that. We need to check ourselves. Jesus is saying that the people of this world are more shrewd. They're more dedicated. They're more diligent to the things that are failing, to the things that do not last forever. You might get that job. You might get that, that, you might get that raise. You might get that, you might get that position on the Olympic team. That might happen because of your dedication, because of your discipline. But you won't have it for long. And so Jesus is trying to get us not only to understand the futility of, of the world and that there is work that needs to be done, but he also wants to give us the right motivation and the right heart for doing it. One of, one of the challenges that I have, you know, the Bible talks so much about discipline and about, about diligence and about pursuing righteousness and holiness. Probably, aside from John 3, 16, because everybody knows that, probably the easiest Bible verse to remember is 2 Timothy 2, 22. 2, 2, 2, 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2, 22. It's, that's easy to remember. That's going to be stuck in your head for the rest of your life. 2 Timothy 2, 22. Well, what's it say? Well, 2 Timothy 2, 22 says, flee youthful lusts. Flee sin and pursue righteousness. I had this idea in my head and I wasted so many years of my Christian life because I really did believe no one ever talked to me like this. No one ever preached to me and said, Ian, like get disciplined, get busy, get up early, engage, pray to God, talk to him, read the word. Here is everything that you need to know. No one ever really implored me to do that. And so I kind of had this belief that, that, I, would, that I would get saved and that I'd kind of be taken into this like ethereal, I'd be, I'd be indwelt with, with God the Spirit and I just sort of would want to stay away from sin. I would not go back to those places. I wouldn't hang out with those people. And there is certainly an element of that, but the Bible says to fight. How much negligence is there for our, just, our inner, just our inner person? Are we diligent with our, just our own lives, the things, that we, the things that we listen to, the movies that we watch, the places that we go? Are we diligently pursuing righteousness and fleeing youthful lust? I mean, sometimes you've, got, like, you've just got to run. Like Joseph just had to run from that sexual temptation. He split. He had to run away. 
And I would argue, and this is a lesson that I've had to learn the hard way, that not only do you have to sometimes just, you have to run away when you're in that, when you're in that situation that is just rife with potential of just gnarly sin. Sometimes you're having to run away is, is evidence that you're a failure. I remember I, I told my mentor one time, I, I, was in, I, was in this, I was in this situation, I was a believer, I was alone with a woman, and I, I left very quickly, this was years ago, and I sat down with, with my mentor, Paul, and I told him about that, and I was like, I, you know, I fled from temptation. He's like, no, man, I mean, like, good for you, but you still screwed up. He said, why were you there in the first place? Why were you even in that position? You weren't paying attention. You weren't being diligent. And friends, that's a mistake that we can make again and again and again because we're not paying attention to what we're doing. And I don't want this to be a works-oriented thing, but there is something here that Jesus is saying. Are you paying attention? Do you flee from youthful lust? Do you flee from things that the devil can use to bring you into his snares? Do you avoid them? Because oftentimes we just make excuses and say, well, you know, the Lord will convict me of that whenever he's ready to convict me for that. <laughs> just shows that we're not reading our Bibles. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24. He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you may win. Not everyone who competes in the games exercises now, now, not not, excuse me, now everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible crown. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, and I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body, and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified." When was the last time any of us read that verse? Do we, do we take our Christianity seriously? We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. But saving faith, that kind of grace, that kind of amazing salvation, that Jesus Christ set aside everything and came to earth and died on a cross, being mocked and jeered at by a bunch of Romans and a bunch of his own people, Israelites, taking on the sin of the world, taking on the punishment of sin so that we might have eternal life in heaven, so that we might never have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we do is we say, great, thanks for the cross, and now I'm just gonna keep doing my own thing. Friends, the Bible teaches that if that's your attitude, if you're, if you're a verse 14 Pharisee who's scoffing at Jesus, you have to ask yourself, do I even know him? Have I experienced this grace? Because that kind of grace, and it is a tremendous, incalculable grace, it will change you. It will change your heart. And Jesus goes on to teach that. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but he's that good. And so someone might say, yeah, Paul, I don't like Paul. You know, he's hard to understand. He says weird things. Boxing, like I'm just beating the air, whatever. Well, how about Jesus himself? Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. We cannot meddle with the sin that Jesus died to save us from. And if you do so comfortably, without conviction, friends, please, please wake up. Ask yourself this question. Are you a steward of unrighteousness? Are you are you deceiving yourself or are you a son, of, are you a son or a daughter of light? This, this parable draws a line and I know that it's not fun. 
I know that oftentimes people come to church because they just want to be either entertained or they want to hear something that is kind of cool and makes them feel good. And there's plenty to feel good about in the Bible. There's plenty, plenty to feel good about the person of Jesus Christ. He's the most amazing person ever. He is the Lord and Savior of the universe. And we can't unite with him and then go, but I don't want anything to do with what your standards are. I'll take your salvation and then I'm just going to continue living my life. Friends, that's a mistake. And it, it actually is impossible to truly do that but it's possible to deceive yourself into thinking that you're doing that. Do we pay attention not only to what we're doing, but to what, with our inner lives, but with our outer lives? Do we donate? Do we give? Because nothing that we have is our own. Nothing, people, people you know, they, they'll argue, well, I worked hard to get here. I was dedicated. I was disciplined. I didn't go out and party. I stayed up late to go to night school and then I got up early to get exercise and I took my 80 hours of study or of work or whatever else to get where I am and so I've earned this. I hear that. But you did it because your heart was beating, you were able to do it because your lungs function, you were able to do it because there was blood in your veins that you're not making flow. You're not causing the synapses in your brain to work. You're not causing your heart to beat. Everything that we have is a gift. Greg and I were on a run again yesterday loving our life, running up the hills at Tabor, just, you know, sucking air and sweating and, and, but, and we stopped for a minute. We're like, isn't this great? Because like we both paused for a moment. We started talking about this. Like we're so thankful. We're in pain and we're sweating and we smell like man potpourri. But we were like, we, we have the blessing of a body to do this. Thank you, Lord. Not everybody can do this. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It was just this sweet moment where we realized in the midst of sweat, friends, I don't do that enough. I think that what I have is mine. I, I, can, I can talk. Paul Anderson was the first person. I'm sorry, you can blame him. He was the first person in 2014 to point his finger at me and say, you should think about preaching. And I think, okay, great, well, I can talk. Friends, I don't, that doesn't matter. I can, I can talk because the Lord gives me this, that gift every single day. And how often have I used this same mouth to curse and to cuss and to tear down and to destroy people's reputation and to destroy their name with gossip and smack talk and all the rest? We misuse the things that the Lord gives us. And the thing is, is that it's not even ours. Like this steward, like what he was misusing, what he was, what he was wasting, it wasn't his. Jesus is calling us to attention here. What you have is not yours. It's a blessing that he has given it to you and he is so good, he is so righteous, he is so kind that when you understand who he is, you cannot help but take everything that you have, whether it be money, time, your voice, your musical talents, some sort of ability with math, architecture, science, childcare, nursing, growing food, like give what you have. If, if all you have is prayer, pray, pray. That's a tremendous gift, you can do that. And that's something that we don't do enough. We can pray for people. We can pray in a way that just, we're just enjoying God's presence and then we can pray like intercessory prayer, like working prayer for the church and for the saints and for the progression of the gospel. Are we paying attention to what we have? Because what we have and how we use it. How we use what we have is a really good indication of where we're at with our Lord. 
And so Jesus goes on, this isn't all about dollars and cents. This isn't all about what you do and what you don't do. That's there. But then Jesus moves to the heart. Jesus moves to the motivation. Jesus moves beyond the attitude of, okay, I'll write you a check. Here it is. Leave me alone. I did my good deed for the month. He moves beyond that. He gets deeper here. He says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will take you into eternal blessings. What is he saying here? He's saying make friends with yourselves. We'll get back to the wealth of unrighteousness, but he says make friends so that whenever, you, whenever what you have here fails, they will welcome you into eternal blessings. This isn't just duty. This isn't just mechanical. He says make friends. He's talking about heaven being a place of love and of relationships forever. And so here's another, here's another, another, another fork in the road. People say, well, who's the they? Make friends with yourselves so that they will welcome you into eternal blessings. Some people say that it's, it's the church. Some people say that if when you go out, whenever you're obedient, when you use your resources to do what God calls you to do, and you go out and you proclaim the gospel and you baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded, and people respond to the gospel, they believe in Jesus for salvation, that if they die before you, when you get to, to the new heavens and the new earth, there'll be people there with their arms wide open saying, yeah, dude, welcome. And I think that there's something to that. I think that there is something to Jesus hanging on the cross next to that thief. And Jesus saying to that thief, that thief said, remember me when I come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I will. Today you will be with me in paradise. And a few hours later they were. Imagine what that bonding experience must have been. You know, hanging on the cross next to Christ and then being in paradise with him. That's a friendship. That's a love that does not end. You know, love here on earth is one of the greatest sorts, sources of our pain because it's always going away. Our kids get sick, our spouses are hurt, our friends are going through turmoil, and we feel that, don't we? Love is costly. Not so in the new heavens and the new earth. Not so where there's no more sin. Not, not so where there's no more death, there's no more decay, there's no more atrophy. Jesus is bringing our eyes up. Jesus is drawing our attention away from what is here, away from what fails and up to what does not fail, to relationships that do not fail, to a heaven that does not fail, to a, a love that does not fail, that does not decay, that does not dissipate or disappear in any way, shape, or form. He says, make friends with yourself from the wealth of unrighteousness this is, this is less contested than I would have thought. There's, there's not as much disagreement about this uh, terminology than I would have thought that there is. What Jesus is saying is, again, clearly not make friends with wealth that is stolen or wealth that is somehow acquired through dishonest means like the shrewd dishonest servant. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Unrighteous wealth is simply the things that we have here. It's the things that fail. It's the things that we're going to lose. Everything that we have, though it is a gift, is, it is marred by sin, right? Remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, the Lord says, even cursed is the ground because of you. Everything that we ha have here, every talent, every skill, our, our, our financial wealth, our abundance of time, our abundance of skill sets, knowing how to knowing how to build. One of the greatest places that I have seen the kingdom of God move forward is in Samaritan's Purse because there was people that knew how to build homes. They knew how to do electrical and plumbing and they got out there and they did it. All of that is still under the banner of sin. 
It's beautiful and it's helpful and we're called to use it wisely, but it's still unrighteous wealth. And Jesus is saying, use it. Use it for kingdom purposes. What is in your hand? For, for years, for years, what was in my hand was a glass cutter. And I thought, what a silly tool. And then I was able to use that silly tool at Samaritan's Purse and bless people with new glass for their homes that had been previously destroyed by flood or fire or tornado or whatever else. What's in your hand? What can you donate? What, what, what sort of wealth do you have that you can turn over for kingdom purposes and do things with that whenever you do that, the kingdom, the, the, the halls of heaven rejoice and say, yes, that is what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Proclaim the gospel. Use social media. Use your work. Use your voice. Use your talents. Use your skills. Use unrighteous wealth and make friends. It might, it might very well be that these are the people who come to faith because of the work that you're doing. And the other, the other side of this is that people say, well, this is Jesus himself. When Jesus says, make friends with yourself from the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will welcome you into eternal dwellings, that the they is the Trinitarian God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming, welcoming you into heaven, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. The last night of Jesus' life, he's with his disciples. It's just before he's betrayed and hauled off in chains. He says to his disciples, I no longer call you slaves because slaves don't know what their master is doing. Now I call you friends. This is not just cold. This isn't just about doing. This isn't just about mechanical. This isn't just write a check and hand it off and now you've done your due diligence. This is about worshiping Jesus. This is about understanding that he offers for us a love and a future that is beyond corruption. He says, make friends for yourselves from the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, because friends, everything that we have here will. Everything that we have here will fail. You know the famous teaching where he says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth eat and rust destroys and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And I don't know exactly what those treasures are gonna be for you. I don't know exactly what the Lord has in mind, but he's entrusting you with this worldly wealth. He's trusting you with this, these implements of unrighteousness to do kingdom work. That's what we have. This is, this is what we have. We have microphones. We have a stage. We have this building. This could probably just as, you know, just as easily be a, a yoga studio or something, which is fine. But this is a church. We use this building to proclaim the gospel. What's in your hand? What do you have access to? What can you use? Where am I at? Oh, I got to get moving. <laughs> so he goes on to make the point. He who is faithful in the little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in the very, in the very little will also, be unrighteous, will also be unrighteous in that which is much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you which, that which is your own? We're given gifts here. We're, giving bo we're given bodies that work. We're given voices that work. We're, we're given the ability to think and to write and to do all sorts of things that can push the gospel forward. And we, and, and we don't. We don't. You just have to, you just look at the world around you. I, I just watched a, 
a documentary about Woodstock 99, and, and you know, and boy, don't, I, I had no idea that Woodstock 99 happened. But, the, but what, I, what I took away, what, just within the first 30 seconds of what I saw of it, what I took away from what was happening there is 250,000 people gathered in one place for three days to hear musicians, their favorite musicians play. And it was in squalor. I mean, it was disgusting. And it's hard to get people to come to an early morning prayer. It's hard to get people to come to a Bible study because our affections are set on other things. We've been trusted with this, this unrighteous wealth, these things that are, that are given to us as gifts. And in many ways, they're wonderful and beautiful. Music is beautiful. We can use it to worship. It's a great thing. But we can manipulate it. We can twist it. We can use it poorly. And what he's saying here is if you, if you are using poorly the things that you're given, then what, what are you doing? Where is your heart? Are you, are you even going to, are you even in the kingdom at all? Are you going to be trusted with things that are eternal? Are you going to be trusted with things that are actually going to last for eternity? When I, when I gave you this gift and you used it for self-exaltation and greed. And a lot of our gifts, that's what we do. And a lot of our gifts, even in the church, we hoard and we hold and we freak out and we don't want anybody to touch our money. We don't want to tithe. Friends, that's one of the, that's one of the easiest ways to, to, to put your finger on the pulse of the health of a church is where, where, does, where, where is the tithing at? Are people so glued to their money that they will not give the church anything so that the church can do what the church does? And we're commanded in Scripture to do it. In the Old Testament, it was 10%. In the New Testament, Paul says, I want you to give out of what you think is right because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So that's up to you. You have to get real with yourself. Look inside your heart. Go home and open up your Bibles and pray before the almighty living God and ask yourself, where am I at? Am I playing around? Am I being foolish? Am I kidding myself? Am I, am I deceived? Because what we do with our resources is the, is the greatest test for where we're at. Do you hoard? Do you give? Are you somewhere in the middle? We're never gonna be perfect. But this is a call to check ourselves. And so in the closing words, as we finish out, what Jesus is promising us here, he says they'll welcome you into eternal blessings. In verse nine, in verse 13 he says, and no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other and be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And this is where, I, this is where, the, this is where we're going to learn one day what, where we're at. What we're taught in, this, in the parable of the steward is that there is going to be an accounting one day. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. But that grace is so powerful, it will transform you and it will show up in your life. And I can't, I cannot tell you where you're at. All I can do is point to the scripture and say, Jesus is telling us that what we do with our, with our wealth, are we using it for kingdom purposes? One of my, man, there's this guy, he's just blessed my socks off. He's an old pastor from Montana. His name's Larry. He's in his 70s. And he, he has a library, and he has given me probably two or $3,000 worth of books, good, rich commentaries, so that I can study, so that I can preach, so that I can know more than I know. It's what he has. It's simple. 
he could hold on to those things. And there's some that he does. He's like, you can have this one, but I want it back. You know, I get it. it this is, in many ways, this is very simple. You can just open up your home to a, to a community group. You can host a Bible study. This isn't, this isn't like Billy Graham, crazy world evangelism, plant a church stuff. Some of this is just so basic. And that's why Jesus is saying, if you're not even trustworthy with the little things, and I'll, say, and, I'll, and, I'll end with, and I'll end with this. Let's not forget. I know that this, these kind of words can be heavy. It can just feel like duty and like I'm cracking a whip on y'all. And listen, that's not what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to, what I'm trying to focus on here is that this is a natural product of knowing and loving and being affectionate and worshiping Jesus Christ. And that's who we have to remember is telling us this. Not me, not some Bible commentator. Jesus is telling us this. And what did he do? Is he standing far back with just, is he just writing a check? Is that his attitude? Okay, human beings, here you go. There's your check. I did my duty for the month. No, he had everything. He created the cosmos out of nothing. All things are made by him, through him, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is God in the flesh, and he took that place. And we're told in Philippians that he humbled himself. What did he do with his glory? What did he do with his riches? He humbled himself to the point of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Because God so loved the world. That's what he did with his riches. That is, that is the God that we worship. That is the God who models this. He leads by example. He's not aloof. He's not standing far off telling us what to do. He, he came and he was bloodied so that we could be put together. He came knowing that he was going to die. He, was the most sub, he is the most submissive, he is the most trusting of the Father of anybody that's ever walked the earth and he knew it was gonna get him killed. He knew that he was gonna die so that we would follow after Jesus knowing that it would bring us into life. So whatever it is that we have here that can bring that gospel message forward, friends, let's do it. Because Jesus is worth following and he's worth obeying, Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. I've gone way over time. Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you for never stopping. Thank you for being obedient all the way to the end. Your word says in John 13 verse 1 that you loved your own who were in the world. You loved them to the end. You were chained. You were beaten. You were whipped. You were led to the cross. People lied about you. People scoffed at you, people made fun of you, and you loved us all the way to the end. Help us, Lord, to take everything that we have and give it back to you. Help us to pray and to read your word and to find where it is in our life that you are leading us to be generous with the things that you have given us, the things that you're calling us to be generous with that aren't even ours to begin with. And thank you that in the midst of all of this work and all of this, this chaos of life that we have an inheritance that is waiting for us that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading with you and with each other. Help us to worship you with all that we have. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus, amen. Hey friends, this is Russ Lacey, one of the pastors here at Door of Hope Southeast. Thanks for listening to this teaching. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help our church as we seek to point people to Jesus and minister here in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your prayers and financial support. 
just head over to dooroforhopepdx.org and click Give from the menu bar. May God bless you.